This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. We allow potty breaks. But it means we can't do that day-long marathon, uh, uh, you know, telethon that we wanted. Were you going to dance this time, Ruben? <laughs> uh, not if we want anyone to give money. Well, I was thinking to the piano stylings of your neighbor. <laughs> All right. Well, to kick this off, we did have a question on Twitter. We posted that you know people could ask their questions on Twitter. And so this question is, are RFPs, which I'm assuming is requests for proposals worth applying to if you're a solo freelancer? Um, and then he amends it. Maybe a better question is, what are some strategies for landing RFPs if you're solo? Don't do them. <laughs> I think the biggest problem with RFPs is that there's typically somebody on the inside who already kind of has the job, but the organization requires that they get three proposals before they can actually commit to one, right? So if you don't know you're the inside person, then it's probably not you is the big thing. And it also, like that's, again, like coming into the from the doctor to the doctor and saying, here's all my problems. What's it going to take to solve? And the doctor just tells you what to do without actually doing any diagnosis. So RFPs are a good basis. I wish to start a discussion of what the real problems are, but they're not, yeah, I don't think they're any good for actually doing a good project. And because you never hear about, like, what are the success rates of all these projects either, right? Like, do they actually turn out well? Do they accomplish the goals or anything like that? Or do they just, you know, check off some things? So, I mean, I, I'd heard this also. I mean, it's very typical in Israel for, I think, I think by law, actually, all government, any public thing has to be done in an RFP. And I mean, I toyed with the idea on occasion of maybe applying to them. And then I looked what was necessary in order to apply for government contracts. And the requirements are so onerous. There was just no way that I was going to be able to do all that paperwork. I don't even know if my company fulfilled the requirements. But what Kurt is saying sounds right to me. And I remember hearing this here and there where basically they have someone they want to do the job, and they will often tune the RFP to that person's strengths. And so you're already coming in one or two points down, because you know, the requirements are A, B, and C, and what do you know? There's a guy who needs exactly A, B, and C, and that's probably not you. That said, I, I know that there are companies, I mean, I mean at least, again, in Israel, like it's a, there are a bunch of large consulting companies that basically make all of their money, or most of their money, going and doing these large government contracts. So it's, it's possible to have a business model that works that way, but I don't think it's what any of us is necessarily looking for, right? They're going to have a staff that's looking for it. It's going to sort it, find people to put into it, and they're just sort of moving bodies around from project to project, uh, not necessarily you know, looking for something that's really cool or interesting or career advancing. Yeah, and they'll probably even have someone that's sold job or multiple people whose sole job is to win RFPs. That's it, that's right? right? 
Yeah, and see, I just can't compete with that stuff, and I don't. I have a blanket email that basically says, well, what I said before, like, this is a waste of my time. This is you diagnosing every problem and not coming to an expert, and I just don't engage in that. If you'd like to use this as a basis for a proper scoping session to really figure out what your problems are and how we can measure it, I'd love to talk. Otherwise, please take me off your list. What's the RFP to you? Uh, I probably get about one a month, and that's all I send back. Like, it's just a blank. I don't even fill in their name. I just, here you go. This is what you get back. And actually, one guy sent it to me again, like, two weeks later. And I, and I just wrote back, you already sent this to me. And I replied, I don't do RFPs. Please see my other email. Well, the other thing is, is let's say for a second that it's a project where they don't already have somebody picked out, right? So then what they're doing is they're going out and they're trying to get as many bids as possible. They want to get a wide variety of people bidding all kinds of stuff so that they can feel good about making the decision they're going to make. And then ultimately, you often don't get a real shot at selling it unless you're one of the three bottom bids or unless you're telling them something that they really, really, really want to hear. And so why go to somebody that you have to go in and waste a bunch of time putting together a proposal that they're probably only going to look at one number on, and then if they don't, then you still have to go in and sell it against a couple of other folks. So it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when you can actually go and nail something in a niche, have people coming to you, build your reputation, and then go out and actually find people. And if you actually need a job right now and you're seeing this RFP, you're still better off going and talking to all the people you know and finding somebody that they know that needs your help. Yeah, I even had this. I followed up the client for probably three months. It was like a local women's business group. And I followed up for three or four months and over and over and over. And then finally I got the RFP and I wrote back and said, this is kind of sad because I don't do RFPs and this is basically a waste of my time. That was the short version. I was a little annoyed that time, so I probably made my standard email a little more annoyed. But still, I, it's not worth it to engage in those uh, at all, really. And you want to be that expert that they're coming to, right? Because like Chuck said, they're looking for that bottom line number. How's the, what's the cheapest I can get this? And that's it, walking away. Not you know, who's the expert, who's the best person for this, who's the best fit for us. They're just saying, who can we spend the least amount of money with? They might only take on who's not the cheapest, right? There is a quality qualifier in there, too. But again, I think it's, it's unlikely that it would be any of us. Now, if you have a contact somewhere, like, so my upstairs neighbor for a while was like in charge of the Israeli army's procurement of ships. <laughs> right? It's like a nice, nice job to have. Now he does something else. But basically he said to me, oh, you have your own consulting company. Huh, would you be interested in you know, doing some supply to the army? I said, oh, I'd be interested. He said, I'll just bring the paperwork by. At least three or four hundred pages. I kid you not that I would have had to fill out just to like sign up, so I would be able to participate in their RFPs. At that point, I, I said, "Okay, I just, this is just not my cup of tea." Yep. So I think we all agree. Eric, do you have anything to add? Uh, not really. I mean, I think I've done two. I can't remember if they were RFPs, but I was the person like they did the RFP and they wanted to hire me when they started it. So I don't. I don't think I've really applied to many of them. I think I've talked to a couple of clients and then I did like what Curtis had where, you know, you talk to him, get in a sales conversation and they smack you with an RFP and I decline and walk away. But the other side of it is if you are a larger kind of agency or whatever, RFPs can be a good staple because they're pretty consistent. They're out there a lot. And if you do have, you know, either one employee or like you dedicate a certain amount of time to actually doing that, and that's part of your sales process. Like, it might work, but I think you have to kind of get out of the constraints that they put you in. You know, you can't just submit a bid. You have to kind of go above and beyond. 
whether it's you know you're talking to the client like getting into conversations with them so they remember you or whatever I look at it a lot like uh, when you're going when you're going to apply for a job like if you just apply for a job and go to the interview like everyone else you know you're going to be looked at pretty equal playing field as everyone but if you send a personal letter if you try to have coffee with the hiring person all that uh, you're going to stand out and it's I think it's kind of the same thing with RFPs mm -hmm. completely agree in the chat room Bravo SC asked, it would be great to get a quick review of how to handle taxes, as well as working with other freelancers and those taxes. And he says he's in the USA, um, which does make a difference. But, I think uh, some general rules of thumb, though, for everyone is figure out, like talk to an accountant, figure out how much you're going to pay approximately, and save 5% extra all the time, and more even if you can. So as the dollars changed uh, between Canadian and US, and I get paid mostly in US, it's been awesome, and, but I've also like done, I do the math pretty quick in an application called Solver, which does like dollar conversions really quickly. And so I figure out what taxes do I really need to take off this all the time. Because taxes are not a surprise. They are coming, just like death. The government does not let you away with it, and you need to make sure you save for it. That's the biggest overall mistake that I see in the not hiring an accountant. I've had an accountant since the years I made $8,000 combined with my wife. I'm going to the same guy. Oh, did Christmas freeze? Did he freeze for just me? Let's be very cold there. Yeah, he, um, said, he said exactly what I was going to say. Go to accountant, find out how much you got to put away, put away a little more than that, and then you get a bonus every year when you pay your taxes because hopefully you've saved more than you owe. But I'm curious, this is like a very, maybe this is the, just the way things work in North America because like in Israel, I basically pay taxes every month. Like my accountant says, oh, you made X, thus you have a monthly payment or sometimes a monthly payment of taxes. And so at the end of the year, I'm just basically paying the difference of what I owed or sometimes even get a refund if we overestimated. Yeah, in the U.S., you uh, you can pay quarterly taxes. In fact, I think you're supposed to, and there's a penalty for not doing so. But the penalty has never been enough for me to actually go to the trouble of paying it, so I just pay it once every year. Wow. I think it's, yeah, I think you could do annual or quarterly, but I think it's something along the lines of by October, you have to have paid like 80% of your estimates, and if you didn't, then you fall in that penalty. So, like, you might not need to do quarterly if you don't make enough to hit a certain amount or something. Mm -hmm. It's screwy, and it's like, I paid the penalty the first year, and then I just had my accountant say, like, she just tells me, pay this much. And then every six months or so, she'll update and say, okay, we're going to readjust. And, like, in the very end of December, like, we'll do some prepayments and stuff like that just to shift tax burdens around. That's the kind of thing. I think I pay her, like, five or $600 a year for all of this and doing taxes, and it's like, the amount of like time I spend doing that is like an hour or two versus like dozens of hours, so it's worth it. Yeah, that matches up with my experience. My accountant's like six hundred and fifty bucks when I sit down with them, and and about uh, half of it's a, a tax write off too. So yeah, so I pay, it, I pay way more than my accountant. Boy, <laughs> I think I pay probably the equivalent of like three hundred dollars a month. Plus, I pay the well, like to do an annual report for my company. So like the monthly is basically for bookkeeping. And then the annual, which is probably about another, I think, like $2,000 or so, is to file a report with the government. It also folds in my own personal taxes, which most people in Israel don't have to do. It's basically if you're rich or if you own a company, which people seem to think is the same thing. Ha <laughs> ha, I wish. But, um, but I, well, I have to have an accountant. I could do my books myself, but then I'd be in so much more trouble. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, are you paying him to do your books and your file your taxes and everything else? Yeah. I basically hand him a drawer full of, or a, a plastic bag full of paperwork every month, and email him, you know, the bank statements and all sorts of other stuff, 
him and, and the bookkeeper who works for me, and they then get back to me about a week later and say, this is what you owe in taxes for this month, I mean, the different kinds of taxes, and you're missing information on, and there's always a list of things that I was not a good boy about. So it's actually like definitely in my company's interest and in my interest to have someone else doing this. I, I would just be terrible at it. Yeah, I find, though, that if for bookkeeping, if I sit down and do it myself, it takes me a couple of hours every month, which means that if I did it every week, I, we're talking like a half hour. But the nice thing is is that I know where all the money's going, I know what's coming in, all that stuff, and then I can get a better feel for what I need to focus on. And so I think it really depends sort of on what you're doing because I have money coming in from podcast sponsorships, I have money coming in from other things, and then I have money coming in from the consulting and so, you know, it's a little bit different prioritizing that versus prioritizing, you know, one client over another maybe. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I like to do it because then I know what all the numbers are and I know what's making a difference with what. But, Makes yeah, sense. then I give a report to my accountant at the end of the year and he does the tax thing. One other question that was related to this was subcontractors. So do you have you guys hired subcontractors? I have. Um, and, again, the, the legality the paperwork are going to be different, but basically if I have a subcontractor in Israel, then they are exactly like a company. So basically, I, them, they give me like a receipt, tax receipt here, and we do tax like the VAT, which is sort of like sales tax, um, and then I hand that to my accountant exactly as if I bought anything at the store or, or you know, any sort of good or service. And that gets very, very easy. Um, if someone does not have that, like, and on occasion, people have wanted to work with me or I've wanted to hire them. They've not had that sort of business status. I mean, if it's going to be a long relationship, I'll just hire them as an employee of my company, but that's usually just not worth it for anyone. Yeah, there, there are enough um, requirements on you if you hire an employee in the U.S. to where I just hire subcontractors because ultimately then I get it. And this is what G. Pickens said in the chat. You know, I, I get a W-9 from them up front. Uh, I send them a 1099 in January. That is if if they're pay, I paid them more than six hundred dollars I think is the limit, and then you know they're responsible for all their taxes etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I have hired subcontractors outside of the country, and if they're out out of the country, then I don't actually have to file any paperwork on them. I just have to show that I paid them, and I think I may have to demonstrate that they actually did some work for me. But I mean that's it, and that's only if I get audited. So yeah, the whole the whole international definitely makes it much more complicated in some ways, but also easier in some ways. Because the moment yeah. that you're dealing with people outside of your own country, then your tax authorities are like, well, you know, mm-hmm. just, just show us some paperwork they were doing something for you somewhere. And it becomes much less official, this is my experience. Yeah, they, they generally don't, at least from what I've seen and heard, they're not as strict about that. But then you have to deal with exchange rates and how to wire the money or, you know, send them a check or deposit in PayPal or whatever options you have or don't have, and that depends on the country. Anything else to add on that before we answer the next question? All right, let me uh, let me tackle this one, or read it anyway. Uh, it says, all of you are individual freelancers, but some work with subcontractors. What do you think about partnerships? It makes you look bigger when taking on clients, talking to clients, more stability, etc. Do you think the downsides outweigh those positives? Most bigger customers seem to steer away from individuals, go it alone, or find a partner. Thoughts? I think that comes back again to you being an expert or not, right? I've worked with lots of very large companies who have come to me because I am an expert in their problem currently, and we may end up doing more work, but they come to me because I am the expert first. Um, when they're looking for like a general web shop to do stuff, then yeah, of course they're going to look for bigger shops typically, but they have I have a specific acute problem, and you solve it. I would like to work with you 
on this? I have a little bit different experience because uh, most of the big companies that I've worked for, they weren't necessarily going for a particular niche or had a specific niche problem. So I've worked, let, just to name a few, I've worked for Gannett Press, who owns US, USA Today, I think, is one of the, or US Weekly, one of the big newspapers. USA um, Today, yeah. But it was, uh, you know, I was working on a little niche project that they had, and so they really only did need one programmer to maintain it, and they knew that. So, you know, they came to me, and I kind of inherited the project from somebody else who inherited it from Pivotal Labs, which is a large Rails shop. I've also worked with Deseret Book, which you guys probably haven't heard of, but they're a fairly prolific book slash religious stuff. They sell paintings and statues and stuff. So it's kind of a religious bookstore here in Utah and Idaho, and they're a fairly large company. And I did a bunch of work for them, and it wasn't necessarily that it was specialized. It was just that they knew who I was and knew that I could do it in Ruby. And uh, so I you just landed a contract with an insurance company in Austin, and they're fairly large. And again, you know, what happened was I was actually talking on this show about my capability and past building social networks. And so they came to me because I had the expertise. I could tell them that I could get it done in the time that they needed it done. And so they're paying me to do that work now. So, you know, what, what Curtis said is really accurate. If they are confident that you can solve their problem, then you can get those contracts. And it doesn't matter if you look like one guy or a bunch of guys. Right, that said, and I think, mo I think you, what you guys said is basically true. That said, there are definitely times when people have come to me and said, well, exactly as the, as the question said, well, maybe you're an expert and you can help me out, but I just really need to be sure that, you know, the whole hit by bus problem, that you'll be able to do it fast enough, that, you know, there's enough people involved. Um, and sometimes there is a comfort issue with having more than one person. But I think you have to separate the more than one person from the issue of partnerships. And I almost sort of kind of partnered with someone a number of years ago until I realized what was involved and that I'm, I'm hitching myself to them and, and then to me, and I realized, no, no, this is definitely not something I want to do. So you can, you can be in business with multiple people and not make it a partnership. Uh, and if you're going to do a partnership, I think it should not be because you're going to look bit, bigger or more stable, but because you really, really have a great business interest that this other person can help you with. Yeah, I'm theoretically in partnership, big air because I like their work and we work well together, but we don't actually like amalgamate our business in any way. I think the big thing that you just said, Ruben, is that they're really just scared. It's not necessarily that it's one person or multiple people. They just somehow think that it's safer with multiple people, which may or may not be true, right? There's more bureaucracy or more like people to manage when there's more people as well. So it may or may not be true. But that's really the fear that they have, and that's what you need to work to address so that you can prove that you're not this sudden risk. So I think even going back to what's your processes set up to make sure that you're not this big risk. Is it, oh, we talk weekly, or we talk twice a week all the time. We keep going back, right? We'll do milestones every other week. If you're unhappy after two weeks, you can find someone else. That's not a problem. Yeah, I completely agree. And the other thing when it comes down to it with a lot of these companies is that, especially this last one, it's like, okay, well, you know, can you get it done, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, what if we need it done faster? And, uh, you know, I just explained to them that I have enough people that I'm connected to who will subcontract for me, some of them on short notice, to where I can ramp up and get stuff done and you know so if you if you have the answers to some of these questions then it becomes less of an issue other deep thoughts is there any more questions before we make up some <laughs> I can steal a question from entre programmers 
<laughs> Basically, it was a question that came in. We were talking about covering it last Friday, but you know, we wound up doing our regular Mastermind stuff and talking about our own stuff, and I don't know if we're going to get to this. So uh, I'll jump in here. It's a little bit different as talking about putting together a product, specifically a book, in a niche that he's not currently well-known in. It says, I'm launching an ebook on investment strategy. The problem is I live in the tech world and have no resources in the investment world. You know, and then he talks about email lists, and he says, I don't have a mailing list. Maybe you guys can kick around this question on a future episode. How does one break into a market to launch a product? And this can also apply to uh, finding a niche and breaking into that niche if you're not already in it. So how do you break in? I I think writing the book is the wrong place to start, but... And commenting. So who are the leaders already? Do you know who the 10 leaders in the industry are? Are you engaging with their content, commenting on it, sharing it, so that they start to have an idea at least who you are because you're at least commenting on things? Because mm-hmm. when you come out with something and start to announce it and just you know send them an email, they'll say, oh, that's the dude who comments all the time who's always sharing my stuff. I should at least you know scan through this more than just send it off to my admin assistant. I was at a conference on the weekend, and that's what they said. I'm trying to remember. I think it's for The Verge now one big tech site like that, and they have a commenter who comments on every post and has, like, good in-depth comments on pretty much everything. And so when, you know, after six months or something of them doing that and they had something to launch, they sent it out, and they got, like, coverage by, like, four or five of the authors there on different aspects of it just because they actually input in first. Mm. Yep. Well, in terms of entering, I mean, like, there's entering a niche that you've never done consulting in or that you've never been an authority in. There's entering a niche that you know nothing about, right? Like, so it's not obvious to me which situation they're in. Well, they're confident enough to write a book in it, so let's assume that they know something about it. So, right, so they they, they need to get the word out. So I think what Curtis said makes a lot of sense, but also they can start writing about it. You know, they can start blogging about it. They can start making comments, make themselves something of an authority, and try to get that word out, maybe even start a newsletter of some sort. Get a few people who see them as, wow, the person who really knows something about this. But, as I mean, as I've increasingly been learning, a lot of this is a long game that you have to be playing, right? There's no way for this guy to start today and a month from now be an authority. Lots of people are going to jump to read their book. If he blogs for... You know, six months, and engages for six months, and he has a newsletter for six months, then he'll sort of be at the cusp of where he is, where, where he needs to be for people to, I think, take him seriously and say, oh, wow, you know, that's worth you know, reading what he has to say and take him as an authority. Yeah, and even just pick one to start, right? So maybe blogging isn't your thing, but you know, a twice-week or once-a-week video of just something that, mm-hmm. that you talked about. Maybe that's the thing that you are best suited to, and as you keep doing that, then you think, oh, I've got more of the content than once a week, so where else can I put this content? And then you start blogging as well. And then with your email list, you may not have one, but, and the best time is always, like, before today to start it, but the second best time is today, so just put it up right now. Like, get a free MailChimp account and do it, right? Put a landing page together. Uh, you know, if you use WordPress or something, then there's lots of landing page themes that are inexpensive. You know, skip coffee for every day for a week at Starbucks and you can buy the theme, oh, I understand, and you may kill someone at this mean time. Is Curtis slowing down? For yeah, he's, he's, he's fading again. Google <laughs> doesn't want his secrets to be out. That's right. Yeah, but I, I, I'll just jump in here. I mean, I know what, or at least what I'm hearing him say is that, you know, you should be getting involved, you should be writing blog posts, you should be podcasting or YouTubing or whatever. You don't have to do them all. You know, pick one that works out for you and then go after it. And then, like Curtis was saying before, 
you know, where you actually get in and go comment on those blogs, go tweet at those folks, go interact with them on social media. One other thing that's really paid off for me in a lot of ways is going to events. So I go to a conference about whatever it is and uh, get to know the people there. Sometimes there are some paid communities by some of the people who are at the top of that particular niche. And so you can get involved and then get some, you know, cer certain kinds of exclusive access or notice. And then when you're doing something in that area, then they can actually come in and, you know, endorse what you're doing, not necessarily because you're paying them or because they feel like they owe you, but just because they like what you're doing. And just be genuine. Uh, that's another thing that I see a lot of people do is they try and break into a niche by pretending to be something that they're not. And if people know where you are, then they will find a good fit for you. Oh, Curtis is moving again. Because he paused Backblaze, which you can't pause when you first restart because it's not running yet. Uh -huh. Computers are easy, right? Uh huh. Did you want to pick up where you left off? I don't even remember where it was. I think we did good. <laughs> Get into the niche. Support the people. Didn't hear it, but I'm sure it was good. Start your content now. Pick whichever one you want, right? And then start there. Add the other ones as you can. And start the email list. If it's not started, start it today. That's the best time. So Second how big a list do you need today. in order to be able to effectively market to a niche? That all depends. I mean, it depends what your end goal is. If your end goal is to make millions, then you're going to need a big list, right? You're gonna need to be, but you're going to need to be very well known. If your end goal is to get things rolling, because this is a long content game, then like, I think I launched much. My last successful product will caveat that because I launched one that didn't wasn't super successful. Now I say super, I mean no one bought it. When I <laughs> launched to uh, another list, like I think it was only like 150 people, and I made you know a couple thousand dollars over a few days, and it was great. And there's been some trickle through sales since then. You know, a bigger list theoretically, I would have had more people convert as well. Hmm. So you're going to hear lots of stories about people who, oh, it's my first product, and I just you know blogged five times about it, and. Then I launched, and it was awesome, and I made you know $40,000 in two days, but that's only the outliers. You don't hear about the 500 other people who launched something around the same time that you know made nothing to you know a couple thousand dollars or even a couple hundred dollars. So, Right. And a good book to read is uh, Authority by Nathan Berry. Awesome. Plus one on that book. It's awesome. He does talk mostly, though, about selling a book in the book, but it does work for other products. So the other thing that I have heard, though, is that if you write a book on a topic, then you it's easier to be perceived as an expert. So can you do it as kind of a jumping-off point in order to become better known in that space? Oh, sure. Right? I'm doing a manifesto that's going to be free for the email list and 99 cents on Amazon when I set it up, and it's just to continue to get my name out there, really. Right? And I've actually spent the most prepping this product more prepping this part than any other product I have before that I actually you know, sold and stuff. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What's the manifesto called? No is not a curse word. A manifesto on running a business. My should kids don't hearing that word. They scream and yell like it's a curse word. Oh, yeah. I think it should be out. It's all proofed and ready. I just need to set up some stuff on the site, and it's ready to go. So by the, oh, like I say, by the time this goes out, but it's live. So it's not by the time this goes out. By next week, probably. <laughs> awesome. I don't know if I have any other questions that I can pull in. I mean, I'll, I'll just echo briefly uh, a lot of what Chris just said about a mailing list. Like, I've only been taking my mailing list seriously for about a month, month and a half now, and already I feel like, wow, I can't believe I didn't do this earlier. The responses I've been getting from people have just been overwhelming, and I really feel like huh, there's this audience. I'm connecting with them. I'm hearing from them. It's helping me to sell my book. Like, it's just. Been, it's been inspiring and exciting on all possible levels as well, you know, somewhat profitable. And, uh, you know, people are believing, but that's okay. 
but other people have been coming in. I feel like over time it's not only going to grow, but it's going to grow to be a group of people that I can you know, sort of rely on for feedback and that I can obviously pitch things to over time. So it's uh, definitely something to try, and it's not nearly as good as you would uh, think. Yeah, and then even for your calls to actions, like having two or three of them. So right now I have one at the top of my site, and that like almost doubled the people I was getting in, and I have like a slide-up one at the bottom. And I know every developer groans at pop-ups, but pop-ups convert very well. So finding a good unobtrusive pop-up is a good idea if you can stomach the fact that you probably hate seeing them anyways. I actually just put those on my blog recently, and the thing at the bottom of the page seems to actually have had some effect. You no, know, not huge, but something. But the pop-up had zero effect. So I think I must just have very intelligent studio users, or enough of them to make a difference. The other thing is even looking at guest posting on sites, right? I know um, Brian Cassell launched something a while ago, and he posted on Michael Hyatt's site, and he got like three or four hundred email subscribers from the one post. So I may be off my numbers. He got a lot, at least, and he blogged about it a few weeks later when he did his launch recap. That was uh, probably two or three months ago, if you go to his site. Yeah. The guys at Lead Pages also tell you to put Lead Magnet into, so you're telling people, hey, if you sign up for the list, you get this. The byline, like at the very end of the bio, uh, it's called the byline, typically, I think, from newspapers. Yeah. And then one other thing that... So I've, I've gotten to get to know the guys on Entreprogrammers quite a bit better since I've been uh, you know, talking to them every week for the last few weeks. And Josh Earl actually has a series on, and it's another email course series on doing a giveaway to build your list. And he built a pretty massive list. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in the high tens of thousands of people on his list by giving away, I don't even remember what he gave away, but he gave away something on the, it was kind of a, so, you know, only a few people got the prize or whatever it was, but anyway, so they gave it away and they built a massive list by doing that. And so that's another idea. There are a lot of ways to get people to subscribe to your mailing list. And then if you can keep engagement high and the value high on the list, then you can keep them engaged to the point where they'll start buying things from you. I guess mine currently lead magnet is like the five best pricing resources I've found. And that'll become the manifesto when it comes out. And then every month I also give away the best book, business book I read that month. I give it away for free to someone. So that's not a huge expense, really. And I've been right. doing that for the last three or four months. Uh, and I asked, like, you got to email me to answer, me, answer a question, right? So I'm asking, uh, I did good to great, what's your hedgehog concept? Which is something out of that book. And I explained it a little bit to them first and then asked them for that. And I always say, before I'm about to give it out, I always tweet about it. And usually, you know, two or three people subscribe just before I send it out so that they get an opportunity to win it still. All right. Well, uh, should we go ahead and do some picks? Sure. Eric, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, so uh, so this is called Launch, a startup documentary. It's Rob Rawling and Derek Reamer. They basically started Get Drip, uh, which is a email marketing, email automation, uh, subscription SaaS product. And this is like, it's like a two-hour podcast type thing, but... They had, I guess, weekly kind of business calls of like reviewing what's going on, you know, changes in their customer, changes in feature set. And so they recorded that and basically put it all together into one two-hour segment. And I actually listened to it last night. It was actually really great, so I kept listening to it, you know, stayed up a little late. But it's really interesting because you can kind of see the evolution of a software company from like, you know, here's the very beginning of an idea and how it gets changed and how uh, there's like an emotional up and down roller coaster as stuff happens or they find out new information. 
but it's interesting. It's free. It's on iTunes and all that. Um, and I'm actually I use Drip. I was actually remember many of those different times Rob's talking about like in you know indecision. I remember talking to him about some of that stuff. So it's kind of a a pretty cool thing to see like what he was actually thinking on his side. And that's it. Awesome. Yeah, I love Rob and Drip is really cool. So Curtis, you have some picks for us. Pick two. Uh, first one is the best of Art of Value, uh, the podcast. That's episode 26, and they go, he recaps all the things he did last year and kind of the best answer from each guest for the year. That's a good one. Lots of value packed into a, still long because there's a bunch of guests, but you know, into a short time frame with lots of value. Uh, and then a book called Quitter, which is about not quitting your job, actually. It's about uh, one of the good themes in there is hanging on to that job a little longer so that you don't you know, jump into it too soon and it collapses under your weight because you don't actually have the business running yet. It's just kind of a hobby still. They're both good resources for you to learn how to price and uh, to just hang on to your full-time job if you're trying to get it freelancing. Or even if you are freelancing, hang on to that project that you want to run on the side just a little longer and don't you know, commit to it fully yet. Wait till it's fully matured. Yep. Ruben, you have some picks for us? Yeah, I got a pick for uh, this week. So I had a Samsung Galaxy for, I don't know, about three years. And then for the last, I don't know, three, four, five months, it was just going totally crazy on me. It would, you know, refuse to answer calls, refuse to make calls, you know, the sorts of things that you occasionally want your phone to be able to do. And so I checked with a friend who knows a fair amount about mobile stuff. And he said, well, if you've got friends or family coming from the U.S., there's this new cheap phone that's actually pretty good. And I got it, and it's only six weeks in, but I got a blue phone, blue from BLU. You know, I'll put the oh, wrong, wrong chat to put it in. I'll put it elsewhere. But I got the, the Blue Life, was it Blue Life 8, I think it's called? Something like that. And basically, yeah, Blue Life 8 unlocked. And on the one hand, a simple Android phone, it does all the Android things you would expect, but it was only $170. So my feeling is, even if it's like a total piece of junk and disintegrates in a year, it's still going to cost me less to buy one of these every year than it would buy a Galaxy, whatever the latest number is, uh, every year to keep up with you know, the Joneses or just be able to make calls on my phone. So uh, it's definitely worth checking into. So far, you know, it's obviously have a slightly cheaper or even much cheaper manufacturing uh, tolerances and thresholds of the other ones. Uh, you know, the headphone jack's a little loose, and the 3G could be a little better. But uh, You're totally <laughs> selling it to me right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Eric writes, shocks you, whatever he's... No. <laughs> oh, by the way, put some tape on it, too, and... No, like it's a tin can and a piece of string for emergency calls. No, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I mean, I use my phone, and I even use it a fair amount, but I'm definitely not, like, a super crazy, uh, you know, phone user. And so for my purposes, with a few apps and just being able to get mail here and there and listen to podcasts, I like this one. Um, then it's uh, more than adequate, and uh, I definitely get good value for the money, at least for now. You can ask me another six months when it starts to fall apart or when I need to use more tape. So you're an Android user. Do you listen to podcasts on it? I'm curious to know what podcast app you use. I do. So I use uh, this thing called uh, Double Twist, which I'm pretty happy with, and it basically, <laughs> and it basically syncs to iTunes because I have a Mac on my desktop. So I download all the podcasts on my desktop, and then I got their paid add-on because I was tired of moving USB cables all the time. I got a paid add-on that syncs between the phone and iTunes uh, when I'm on Wi-Fi or in my network at home. I found that to be more than adequate. One of these days, maybe I'll use something that will do podcasts on Android itself, 
But the ones that I've tried have all been pretty lousy in terms of downloading it and using it there. And besides, I want to have it on my computer to listen to as well as on the phone. Right. So, <laughs> all right. I've got a pick really quickly, and this is in line with what we were talking about uh, as far as being a, an authority, and that is John Sonmez, who's been on this show. He has a blogging course. It's an email course. It's free. And so if you go to that link and you sign up, then you'll get a series of emails that basically uh, walk you through setting up a blog that you can use to build your career, build some notoriety in a particular niche. And it's it's a really good course. Really enjoyed it. So that's my pick. And I guess we'll uh, wrap up, and uh, we will definitely announce this better next time. Take care. Ciao. See you guys. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.